people are, are fairly unaware of what can be achieved. You know, that you can overcome a phobia in half an hour or that you can become confident on stage very quickly or, you know, you can sort of that imposter syndrome in the back of your mind that's been saying you're not good enough and they're going to find you out for a, that can go away, you know, and, and they're the sort of things that people people are unaware of just how dramatically they can change and how easily they can change. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with Daryl Scott. This is a hard introduction to record because we had a wide-ranging conversation on a number of disparate topics, but they were, in no particular order, Daryl's unifying theory of everything, which is leadership and culture, and that they are responsible for all of the performance gain inside an organization and also the reason why every company that he's ever worked with, which was broken and in need of fixing, where the problem lay. We also talk about his behavioral economics meets neuroscience theory of monkey, lion, dog, and how rational-based buying, marketing personas are pointless. And we talk about how that theory and how you apply it to COVID has taken spontaneity out of the UK population and left us in a sense in a state of learnt helplessness. We talk about that. But I had a fantastic conversation with Daryl. We go all over the place. We have great fun. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. My name is Daryl Scott. I am a performance coach, uh, amongst other things. And what was the third thing, Dom, I had to say? And I have <laughs> And I have a terrible memory. Short-term memory issues. I was going to say where you work, but you oh, don't. Oh well, I don't. Yeah, wherever wherever I get paid, <laughs> I think is a gun for hire. A man of discernment. There you go. And so, what uh, when you say performance coach, how do you help people? What do you help them do? What types of people do you help with? What types of performance? Yeah. Oh, goodness. Um, well, I'm, I'm interested in psychology. You know, I'm a, an expert in NLP and lots of psychometrics. And uh, but I'm also a, a business consultant and, a, and an entrepreneur. I've, I've started five businesses that are all still trading today in one form or another. And I think, you know, business is people. Business is really about people. You know, all customers are people. All employees are people. You know, culture is people and mindset and attitude and vibe and uh, I, I think everything in business is is about people, and so that's sort of the the frame with which I approach everything. So that might be organisational culture, might be team performance, it might be individuals, you know, overcoming their own heebie-jeebies about presenting or or their own imposter syndrome or whatever else. So I, I kind of take a psychological approach to businesses, teams, and and individuals to to provoke a, a change in performance. I was talking to one of your pupils last night all right no no mr (laughs) belgrave was telling me that uh you'd you'd helped fix his ability to present in public wow i mean what a what a what a person to work with you know he's 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 brilliant isn't he he's a super talent so uh, as a coach sometimes you get clients like that and it's a blessing because they're already superstars and you can just make a tiny change and and away they go and what um around presenting what's the do you have other common themes or is every every person's heebie-jeebie different yeah there are themes and they change over time i mean anxiety 
there's been a lot of anxiety stuff recently that, that I've worked with. Um, but yeah, presenting is, is, a, is a big one, as you'd imagine. Um, and um, that, and also the stat that in, keeps getting the, the stat that keeps getting put out, which is that people would rather die than speak in public. Yeah, well, <laughs> public speaking is bigger fear than death. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? It's like, well, what on earth do they think could possibly go wrong? I did, I did this. Um, <laughs> it's probably not dying. Years ago, I, I did a, a presentation to the top 150 people at Barclays, and it was in this, uh, it was Regis office actually that was hired in um, Canary Wharf. And, uh, and and it was this sort of hexagonal stage. And, and I stood up to do a speech, and the person introducing me was a friend of mine, a lady called Maxine, and she she gave she gave the most gushing introduction. You know, one of those like, "Oh bloody hell, please shut up because I've got to follow this," and you know, <laughs> no pressure type intro. And then uh, as she finished the introduction, I I reached down and turned the microphone on, and uh, it screamed. You know, with this sort of a, a feedback, you know, it squealed the microphone. Uh, at which point, I was so disoriented with it, I. I, I pulled the top off the lectern that I had to hand on and then fell off the stage backwards. And, and it was like, it was sort of like, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bean. And uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't even said anything. And then, so then I had to get back on the stage and sort of style it out. And so I sort of made a joke of it and I hung on to the lectern for the first sort of 10 minutes. And, but, but you know, even after the sort of immediate hilarity, there'd be, the video kind of like noise or, or you'd, you'd see it, you know, even 10, 15 minutes into the speech, I'd notice a pair of shoulders and start bobbing again where <laughs> it was just awful. But, you know, it was almost like the worst case scenario. Now, I, I don't know how I could have made it worse. Maybe wet myself or something. But, but, <laughs> but it was okay. You know, it, it was all right. It ended up being quite good fun. So, you know. So what do you know. do? what do you do for people with anxiety? <laughs> well, not that. Yeah. Um, well, it, it would it would depend, but uh, it's one of these that can't I can't empathise with that a lot because people people sort of the way they report and their narrative around what it feels like it's almost like pins and needles, you know, real physical distress that people get into. But um, but a lot of it is around uh, a fertile imagination about you know things that could be going wrong and things that people could be thinking and. So, so you know, there's there's a degree of unpicking it, you know, because if you didn't think it, it wouldn't be there. But also then sort of making a physiological change to almost using hypnosis and NLP and things like that to just break that kind of association, break the pattern of behaviour so that something else can emerge. Aha, uh-huh. okay. And so that... I always hate that. I always hate the how do you do it question because it's like I'm not going to be able to explain this uh with it without sort of understanding i mean it's okay for you because you're an nlp practitioner or you know you yes. understand how some, of, how some of these techniques work or what i mean one of the b- biggest barriers i find to, to what i do is that people are, are fairly unaware of what can be achieved you know that you can overcome a phobia in half an hour or that you can become confident on stage very quickly or you know, you can sort of that imposter syndrome in the back of your mind that's been saying you're not good enough and they're going to find you out for a, that can go away, you know, and, and they're the sort of things that people people are unaware of just how dramatically they can change and how easily they can change. So a lot of the times when people say, you know, how do you do it or what do you do? It's a difficult question because, you know, if you've not experienced it, you're going to think, well, what on earth are you talking about? <laughs> But it, but it has to be it has to be a prerequisite, doesn't it? It has to be that the person wants to change. And so uh, often, so often people say things like, "I want this change to happen," but they don't really. And the reason it hasn't is because there's something about there's something about the situation that they have that serves them in some way. Yes. It's like the old joke, isn't it? How many psychotherapists does it take to change a light bulb? It's like only one, but the light bulb has to be ready. You know? <laughs> so, so I, I think that's bollocks. You know, uh-huh, I, I, nice, good. I, I, I don't believe that. I think that you know, with the right provocation or the right penny drop or the right light bulb or the right whatever, you, you can change very, very quickly and easily. And and the, the evidence of that is, you know, if something negative were to happen to you tomorrow, 
that experience would make a shift happen. Would it would you would develop a new habit or a new a new um, behavior if something were inflicted upon you, some kind of stimulus. So, so the human nervous system can change in a heartbeat, and you don't need any conscious permission for that to happen. Yeah, I, I, I suppose the thing, the, the thing I was thinking about is, you know, sometimes people, you know, they go for surgery and it's like, you know, if you're, you're too overweight for the surgery, if you don't lose weight, you're going to die. And yeah. then people go, okay, I'll have another cake then. I won't bother. I'll die <laughs> instead then. And you're like, yeah. you know, how, or, you know, or, you know, people who, I don't know, stuff where obviously there's a, a terrible habit and people... Yes don't want to change it yeah no okay i get where you come from yeah i agree so, that, so, that's, so that's what i meant you know like it's not yeah. it's, it, it's not there is it, it, if there's a if there's an outside stimulus as you say then that might shock people i mean i was talking to a guy this morning who i know in australia and he said look i had a health scare so i've resigned from my job i i've decided it, it's it's changed my perception of my time left such yeah. that i'm going to go and do something different and so you know incident change yes I, I think I think the co- you know if you're coaching then you're absolutely right you know some uh, you know commitment and will and all these things make a difference and if someone's half-assed or they're not congruently you know involved in what they're trying to change then you're absolutely right it's just it's just not going to work out but I think when it comes to things like interventions um, you know the sort of things that I was talking about like overcoming fears and anxieties and things that's more like yeah it's an intervention it's, it's something that you you know you can't you don't coach someone out of a, a phobia you know you, you can't you know, phobias fascinate me because you know i mean i've had some great ones over the years you know i've got balloons and buttons and you know clowns and bananas was one <laughs> like phobia of bananas was really interesting but um, and that, and you don't you don't get to tell people you have phobias of bananas very often because yeah. there's not a lot of sympathy in the room. Exactly. With this particular person, the, the, if if someone on a train compartment had a banana on the way to work, they would have to get off the train and get into the next compartment to get away from the because <laughs> they can smell it, you know. It's, but but the thing that fascinates me about phobias, and I, and I think there's such a great illustration of how human beings work, which is that everyone I've ever worked with when they're doing the phobia, you know, they have a conscious narrative which is at odds with it. So they'll be saying, don't be ridiculous. It's only a tiny spider or it's just a balloon. No, don't be so silly. Or, you know, it's, 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 just, it's not even a real clown. It's just someone dressed as a clown, you know, or, or whatever. And yet, and yet they're sweating and their heart rate's gone up and they have to do something about it. Absolutely. So, so there Fight or flight. Yeah. So there's behavior that you can change through coaching and discipline and clarity and awareness, and all these things. But but I think the things that I was talking about were much more like unconscious reactions, things like, you know, getting up on stage and and uh, and, and getting the eebie-jeebies or having anxiety. And they're not things that you can change through reasoning or, or thinking differently. You've got a as a person doesn't need their reasoning change because they know it's irrational already. Absolutely, absolutely. If they could, if they could, if they could change it through thinking and reasoning, they already would have done. And and so it's your thing that most people don't know. You know, if you're listening to this and you suffer from some sort of phobia, most people are unaware that there is somebody who could fix you in about thirty minutes. Yeah, yeah. Most people are unaware, and and you know there aren't many paradigms or or many sort of methods so for example we take cbt which is a extremely reliable and effective uh therapy process but it's quite a paperwork one so so it so it 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 uses sort of fractionation and and uh uh bit exposure sort of a bit bit more and a bit more and a bit more in 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 a manageable way and so so it could certainly help you overcome a phobia but it might take six months of, of, of sessions to do it but I, th- I think half an hour is the longest it's ever taken me to to get rid of a phobia that, that'd be the that would be slow you know that would be does that does that give you a sense of satisfaction is that is a is it different to you know working with a business when you you know the, a sense of relief in somebody well, i think it's i think it's the same i think it's the same kind of reward that you know that that so you know when you're working with a business and you give them a nugget and they 
and they and the lights come on and they change their behavior and and they get a great result it, it's the same thing you know it's the same sort of uh it's the same benefit i, I think the only difference is i think in in the therapy realm you can find it quite annoying sometimes when you meet someone who has been has spent ten years regularly going to therapy for something that you could sort out in a, you know, a couple of sessions. That that's quite irritating, um, but you know you you learn to live with that. <laughs> and what um, what have you been doing? Because you you wrote you came to the the summit on the farm. I mean, you were one of the speakers who who was brave enough in September to come and spend the day with, with our clients on the farm in the sunshine, yeah. 27 degrees. And it, it, uh, you know, we started well, planning, we started planning enough. this year and it was sunny today. And it's, it's just, I look at the field and I go, we're going to, we're going to do it again. It's going to be great. Yeah. I, I, I mean, what? I thought it was terrific that event just, and I think you, it was your bravery. I just, I went, I thought, well, if they're doing it, it must be okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it was. <laughs> I think you were the brave one, yeah. But it, yeah, it was terrific. It was inspirational. That you know, uh, a, a great event. But um, and you, you spoke about your, is it the book or the work, Monkey Lion Dog? Yeah, Monkey Lion Dogs is um, uh, is my my thing, I suppose. Where uh, I spent twenty years learning loads of psychometrics and going on all kinds of weird and wonderful fringe psychology stuff, and and reading lots of pop psychology books and some academic stuff here and there and um and and i i discovered that so much of the stuff i was i I was interested in um whether it was neuroscience or psychology or philosophy so many disciplines split the human being into three parts if you like like three three doms or you know three 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 people uh and it's almost that there is a uh there's your kind of primal brain uh, your your sort of brainstem and and uh, and your gut and your your sort of which which deals with the outside world. It deals with your behaviour and visible displays of communication and opportunities for for um, food and and mating and things like that. It's very sort of primal, opportunistic. Who am I in the world and 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 uh, and how are things going for me? And then we have a, a limbic system, which is the the, the centre in your brain. This is. Um, this is the part of you that's concerned with uh, emotions, and and uh, and then you have the the tree bark that's growing around the outside, the, the neocortex, which is more thinky. And 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 the reason I think that this this idea echoes through just about everything is because it's it really is how we experience the world. There's a world outside of us, and we you know we wonder who we are in it, and and you know the interpersonally we're we're very sensitive to attention. Um, and, uh, and we, we want to make a difference in the world and we want to influence it. And, uh, and, uh, we want to do things that are alive and spontaneous and fun. And so there's that our outside world. Then there's our emotional world where, um, we want pleasure and we want to be around people that we love and trust and, and we want to feel comfortable. And, uh, so it's almost like, uh, the pleasure pain, you know, or, or, um, you know, positive, negative emotion stuff, really, the, the, the heartfelt stuff. And then, and then there's this, this annoying, thinky thing that, that goes around judging everything all day long and describing things and, and uh, uh, our rational mind, which, which really it just works in, in language and in numbers and it's all comparative and it, it makes evaluations and judgments all day long and, and describes things. Um, and so there are three, they're the three ways that we experience the world. So you can find like Freud's um, id, uh, ego and superego, or the triune brains uh, regions that I just described, or or in Fire theory, it's um, inclusion, control and openness. And in self-relations theory, it's, um, it's uh, playfulness, fierceness and tenderness. Uh, Frank Farley was this legendary therapist. He said everything comes down to money, sex, and death. Um, the, uh, <laughs> uh, what else? Oh goodness, I could go on. Um, uh, Harvard uh, currently looking at learning styles in terms of CQ, IQ, and EQ, which mirrors it uh, again. Um, wow, this is really interesting. Um, so you know, for hundreds of years, we've been in love with the idea of IQ as a measure of intelligence. 
then 60s, 70s, the idea of EQ comes along and suddenly we can be emotionally intelligent. But CQ is your curiosity quotient. And it's it's almost like the, the you know, if IQ is your rational mind and, and EQ is your emotional empathy and connection mind, CQ is the is the contextual mind. The the the, the it's uh, are you interested? Has it got your full attention? And and it, this is important because if you study something that you are fascinated or curious about, you will learn ten times faster and ten times better than than something that you're learning to tick a box or you know something that you're learning because it's a logical choice to learn it because it's a means to an end. If it really fires you up and, and gets your attention, you, you become a genius. Does it link with Daniel Kahneman's thing on, uh, you know, the way in which we lay down memory? Because there's, you know, you can't have a memory without an emotion. And what you're saying is you can't learn anything unless you're interested and engaged, which is why it's so difficult to do it if you're tired. You know, you can turn up for class, sleep deprived and remember nothing because you, you just you just didn't, you just weren't able to engage. Yeah. Well, also memory is a funny one because... You know, your memory, I mean, there's lots of things that affect memory, like context and state is the main thing, like state dependent. So um, there's a really cool experiment where they took a load of mice and, and uh, uh, the, these mice learned uh, a maze and half of them were sort of intoxicated and half of them weren't. And then the following day, they, they were presented with the same problem. But the intoxicated group, half of them were intoxicated again, half of them were not. And then the, the group that weren't intoxicated, they... They, half of them remained not intoxicated. The other, the other <laughs> lot were intoxicated on day two. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Complicated, but but the um, the, the fascinating thing is uh, that the ones that were drunk on day one uh, and and sober on day two, they couldn't find. You know, could they? They forgot the maze. The ones who were sober on day one, but then they got drunk on day two, they forgot the maze. The ones who were sober on day one and sober on day two, they remembered the maze. But interestingly, the ones that were drunk on day one and drunk on two also remembered the maze. So, so memory is very much about, it's about a lot of things. It's about, it's state dependent, which is when I say, hey, Don, tell me a joke. You can't remember a single joke. But if, <laughs> but if we start telling jokes for a while, then lots of jokes will occur to you. You know, so, so, so states and associations are really important. But the other thing that's important is that in order to retrieve things, if the stimulus is the same at time of, of retrieval as it was at time of encoding. So in other words, you know, uh, if you, it, it's, it's almost like why we go back to retrace our steps when we've lost something. It's almost like by going into the correct room, suddenly we remember where we've left it. And yes. uh, so... So if you want to remember something really well, make sure that the conditions you do the remembering in are as similar as possible to the conditions where you're going to need to remember. Yes. All those teenagers list, rev, revising with loud music on. Yeah, in a beanbag, sitting in a beanbag, loud music, whatever else is going on. And then suddenly they're, yeah. next thing you know, they're in this horrible silent sports hall with a rickety wooden desk and it and it's uh it and they don't know why they've lost they've forgotten everything <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so what, what does uh what what does your uh what does your theory tell us about people's reaction to house arrest to uh, uh COVID yeah, lockdown? lockdown okay so so if we, uh, uh, you mentioned earlier monkey line dog I, I call monkey I call our contextual mind or our contextual psychology uh monkey uh because uh monkeys are very squawky and and and, and visible uh, i i call our rational mind lion because lions are very hierarchical and uh pretty pretty calm and in control and um and i call uh emotional mind dog because dogs are very loving you know devoted and you know look at you adoringly when you're putting up a shelf or whatever as if you're being really clever um and, uh, so so i think you know we've been deprived you know our, our oxytocin levels are low or whatever we've been deprived of uh interpersonal contact in in a fairly healthy way and and i think contextually you know we've we've lost our aliveness and spontaneity you know because suddenly we're in a world where we're, we're not allowed to 
see as many people. So things like attention and inclusion and uh, 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 those kind of fundamental dynamics of being around other people and having lively interactions have gone. So, so the consequence of that is, you know, your, your friend will phone you up and say, do you want a cup of coffee? And you'll say, great, yeah, when? And they'll say, well, now. And you'll go, now? <laughs> what, you mean like right now? <laughs> so, so I think that that kind of um, the we've got out of the habit of bustly interactions. You know, I, I used to go to London on autopilot to my office and now going to London would seem like a big day out, you know? Probably take I, me well, I went, I went up last Friday. It was a big day out. Yeah. I felt, it's, it's, I felt I, I've been to Spain more times than I've been to London <laughs> in the last 12 months. Yeah. That's the first world problem with whoever there was. <laughs> so, so, so yeah, that, that's one, that's one challenge. The second one is, um, uh, like a lion, a rational mind, uh, in that we've been controlled, right? We've been told what to do, you know. So, so our, our levels of self determination have been really low. It's created a degree of, of learned helplessness, um, and and the consequence of that is, wait, let's wait, wait and see, wait and see what happens, and almost no point planning. And so proactivity. And I mean, I mentioned your your conference earlier in the year, and that was a real. That was a real um, act of determination. You know, you did it. It was legal. It was safe. But even so, people were still a bit weird about it. So, but you you kind of pushed on and made it happen. So um, yeah. So I think that's uh, that self determination or that determination and planning and making stuff happen. That's de- I, 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 well, I do. I do come across that. I do come across that when I speak to people. That you know, you say, I don't know. I'll, um, Oh, well, I went to London last week. People went, you went to London? How did you do that? I said, well, I drove to the station and I got on a train. Trains are running. And it's like, you know, it's like because they haven't left the house, somehow they just think the whole world has stopped turning. Yeah, the world has got smaller. And, and we've, you know, they say it's 100 days to make a habit. So what does a year do, you know, with all of these things? Well, I, was, I was reflecting the other day that maybe my, other than the trip to London, I was thinking that I probably could have gone everywhere I've been in the car in the last 12 months on a horse. And, and it felt like I'd gone, I'd gone, you know what I mean? I felt as though, I felt as though my, my, you know, my travel distance was such that, you know, Salisbury, Salisbury, Winchester, uh, Southampton, you know, they were all journeys that might have been a day out on a horse before the, um, before, before cars. Uh, I haven't been further than that. That's brilliant. I'm looking forward to the next Monkhouse rebrand. It's like the vision of you being the Marlboro man, you know, the <laughs> silhouetted, you know, across the vista of the new forest. <laughs> brilliant. So how does that, uh, that learned helplessness then, how are, you, how are you thinking that shows up? And what are the implications for that when people are coming back to the offices? I was with a client today and they're talking about, you know, plan to reopen their office. Well, I hope it'll be fine in the end. I just think there's this going to be this period of time where we're becoming rehabilitated. You know, I mean, I mean, the third, the third dimension, the dog dimension, is is probably the most violated in in the way the world's changed. In that, you know, you're not allowed to touch anyone, and and you know, we 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 get oxytocin from physical contact. We're, we're you know, we're we're troop animals. We're supposed to shake hands and slap each other on the back and whatever else you know so i think that um uh and, and that to the extent where you know you see people on television and if they're not social distanced you're instantly aware like oh this must have been filmed before lockdown you know? <laughs> <laughs> you, you become so sensitive to it you know this this you know people sort of scarpering from you in the supermarket aisles if you go anywhere near them so so i think that um yeah it, it, I, I i guess what i'm saying is that we'll you know the floodgates will will open and we'll all be told go back to normal and whatever else. And but the the conditions that we've been living under are habit forming, and 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 there is this new normal in terms of interpersonal interaction or a new abnormal, I'd, I'd call it. You know, it's something that's fundamentally not the way our species is wired to interact. Uh, I think that we that think that'll be hard to get back to. Well, I think it'll be fine in the end. I, I just think we'll have this period of time where some people will feel very, you know, excessively anxious about going back to the office or, or, 
or there may be some weirdness when you get there with people having very very different ideas of of what appropriate social contact is once once they've got into that environment together uh, and and other things like spontaneity or i think maybe there'll be this sort of roaring 20s uh, hedonism like after the first world war everyone went crazy I, I think there might be a bit of that but but i think there's also going to be a lot of reserve you know, well, it's funny. It, it, the the sort of two things that happened in the same day a couple of weeks ago was that you know the UK government are still saying it's too early to book your summer holidays. Don't book your summer holidays, otherwise you'll be disappointed. And a mate of mine who runs a travel company wrote to me. and He said, "Dom, I know you know I run a travel company, but and I know you've never booked a holiday with me, Git. But um, just so you know, loads of stuff is sold out." And so if you don't get off your arse and book you off summer holiday, you'll be in a position where there isn't any capacity, just so you know. You don't have to book it with me. I'm just letting you know. And so it was this, that that whole, obviously some people are sitting at home doing nothing and whilst other people have gone, I'm, I'm going to get on. Because well, what he said was, look, all of last year's stuff, most of it, lots of it rolled over. So capacity was already reduced and travel firms have gone bust and da, 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 da. But he said, you know, we've got, hotels that are completely full all summer now that's really surprising i mean that's great I, I, you know i hope that everyone gets to have their holiday and i can't imagine them not you know and other than other countries having you know playing by different rules but you know we, the, the vaccine long that's been pretty impressive hasn't it and it has you know it last, seem to be, last, seems to be moving to a much better place ons data for last week was more than 50 percent of the population would have tested positive because they've either got it, had it, or had a vaccine. So, you know, you know, and if if herd immunity seventy percent, we're getting close, getting close. Um, when you think about neurolinguistic programming, or or maybe if you say NLP to people, what do they say? What what are people's misconceptions around NLP? Do you think? Do you know this? Do you know this is another the NLP also stands for natural language processing? Yes, which is Google, uh, Google's so, so, thing. Yeah, so there's quite a, a lot of um, confusion around that, uh, uh, what it means. But yeah, most people say, "What is NLP?" And, and I hate it. It's the worst question. I think my first book that I wrote on NLP it was 2007. I'm going to say that I wrote it and. The first chapter is that. It's, like, it's basically a chapter of me ranting about how much I hate the question, what is NLP? Because <laughs> it's so bloody unanswerable. But, but I, I think over the years, I've, I've refined a way of talking about it, which is to say in the 1960s in California uh, or early 1970s, uh, around the time of uh, the human potential movement, you know, where there were lots and lots of very, very clever people who had gravitated to that part of the world. Um, a professor and a couple of postgrad students uh, discovered a way of um, working out what people do when, they're, when they have genius abilities. So the problem with it, like, if I meet you, Dom, and you're a genius, and I try to work out how on earth does Dom do this genius stuff that he does, to do it the traditional academic way, I've got to I've got to create a theory. I've got to cook up a theory and go, I, well, maybe Dom is doing this. And then I go and check it and I go, no, 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 it appears he's not doing that. Now I've got to go and find another theory. And so on. So what these what these sort of um, uh, what these academics in California did at the time was they they sort of turned it upside down. And what they did was they they found ways using all kinds of bizarre hypnotic states and that to assimilate the genius's ability. And then sort of pick it apart afterwards by, by removing aspects of behavior and, and things and working out, well, is that what's creating the effect? Is that, is that what's making the difference? So, so basically, you know, in, in simple language, they created a way of working out how people who get extraordinary results get those results by, 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 having, by learning a way of emulating the results. And, and then they sort of went off on this, this uh crusade of finding anyone who was a bit of an outlier anyone who uh, like living in the extremes of of performance so for example if they were around doing their work today they'd be going to look at Wim Hof and whoever else right and because as soon as someone pops up as being really unusual and, and getting really bizarre results they would go and study them 
Uh, and then in the early days of NLP, they studied a few therapy models, um, including uh, an extraordinary hypnotherapist or hypnotist from Arizona and some other stuff as well, and business leaders and, and all kinds of people. And NLP is this bag of stuff that came from, you know, learning learning what all of these these people do so it doesn't have a theory and it doesn't have a model and it doesn't have a structure it's just a load of techniques um and i was lucky enough i, I learned to be a a trainer of nlp uh in in the early noughties and i trained with one of the guys who uh created it the professor of linguistics a guy called john grinder and uh and he uh over the the following four years um kind of took me under his wing and, and mentored me um, from 2008 to 2012. And we would meet up for a, for a bowl of soup and a chat a couple of times a year and, or once a year or whatever. And, but then we would frequently be exchanging emails like every week. And I'd be saying, well, what about this? What about that? And, and that, that four years of, of kind of interacting with, with him was, was, was what accelerated everything. It, what, what allowed me to be able to get the results I can get now. And it, it was incredible. You know, they, they say, don't beat your heroes. And, he's my hero but there, there was no disappointment there whatsoever you know if anything i underestimated how how awesome he is he's like speaks 11 languages and and you know in his 70s he was still climbing frozen waterfalls with axes and crampons and what ride wild horses you know i mean he's just the most extraordinary sort of obi-wan kenobi james bond type character you know and uh uh Anyway, he took me on this this kind of learning journey. And, and at the end of it, he said, I remember him saying to me, you know, all this stuff that we call NLP, you know, all these techniques and these patterns and these structured things you learn, all they are are a load of training drills to teach you how to communicate with someone unconsciously. And, and, and that was his kind of... Um, that was his frame on, you know, NLP as a, as a topic. You know, it, it's just a bag of techniques. It's just a learning. Uh, it's just a load of um, learning drills. But if you go through just them, just trying to get past the rational mind. Yeah, to to put people in a context where they observe what's really happening when people interact with each other. And so, the I suppose if I say it to somebody, most the most common thing is, isn't that very manipulative? Yeah. Well, well, it is, you know. <laughs> no, but it is. You know, that's the thing. It, it's, I mean, oh, what would I say about that? I'd say two things about that. One is um, embedded in it is a sort of ethics because because when you learn um, how to influence and, 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 and how to hypnotize and all those kind of things, along that journey, you learn that the less controlling you are and the more respectful and mindful you are of the ecology of the other person and you know and 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 what's best for them the the better the more effective an influencer you become so in other words if if you go into those kind of uh techniques trying to have one over on someone it's not going to work you know because because that's not how it works that's, that's 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 not the nature of that type of communication so yeah i mean there are parlor tricks you can learn you know, and I, I don't know if you've ever been to any of my gigs where I hypnotize people on stage and do all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so I have a bad reputation for hooking people out of the audience and putting them to sleep and stuff. But but the um, you, you can learn all that stuff, yes, and and it, and it's all very powerful and very very uh, 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 very impressive. But but I think for the most part, you know, the, the stuff that you learn when you learn NLP that. The, the ethics is almost baked in, in that the more you respect the other person's model of the world, the more ambiguous you are in the suggestions you make and the more permissive you are, the, the more influential you become because you're not really leading them. I mean, I always think hip, hypnosis is this fantastic illusion where it looks like the hypnotist is controlling the person who's being hypnotized, but that's not what's happening at all. You know, the, the hypnotist is scratching the forehead of the person that they're talking to in such a way that, the hypnotist is just behind the, the client. So the client does something and the hypnotist will very, very quickly and skillfully feed that back to them in a way that it looks like they've done it because they've been told to. And, and that's what kind of, uh, okay. that's what kind of creates. That's the parlor trick. Absolutely. That's the, that's the trickery behind it. I've just blown it for everyone. But, and so if you're, uh, if you're a CEO business leader listening to this, why should you care about NLP? 
I think because if you, you know, back to your point about it being manipulative, all great communication is manipulation. If you manage to communicate, you have managed to shift the thinking of the other person. And, and, and if you don't manage to shift the person, the other person's thinking, then you've, you've failed to communicate to some degree. So every communication has an intention. We're trying to, otherwise why bother, right? So we, we, we're trying to achieve something in communication. And, and, and people, sometimes I say, all oh, communication is manipulation. And people say, no, it's not. And I'll say, well, now you're trying to manipulate me into thinking that it isn't. <laughs> it's this kind of paradox. But So I think why, from a business point, point of view, why would you pay attention to an OP? Well, number one, if you understand how, if you understand an OP. Well, you said, you said all business is people. And so if you're trying to influence people and you've got some communication challenges, it's at the the heart of, it's at the heart of business to be better at communication. And and do you know what? For about 10 years, that was the way I used to sell out. You say, look, if you understand how influence works, then, you know, how beneficial is that going to be? But, you know, lately, some of the other stuff is becoming even more important. You know, people are getting stressed. People are getting burnt out. It's getting more and more difficult to create healthy working conditions, you know, um, I'm running an NLP program uh, at the end of June. And the, and one of the reasons I've put it in there is to be the most, because I can't think of anything better to get people out of the last year and a half and into the next year and a half. Yes. You know, as to, a, as change, a transition. To, change their, to change their mindset. Yeah. yeah to, to get them be, to what, think differently. To be able to integrate what has happened and be able to move beyond it, be able to put their mindset into tomorrow rather than, you know, into remaining in the holding pattern of the last year and a half and, and dealing with Unlearn their learned helplessness. Absolutely right. So I, I think, you know, understanding people, de- understanding why people really do what they do is, uh, is, is really the advantage of the business of the next few years. It's why behavioral economics is on the rise at such an incredible rate. It's because we've now found out that people don't behave like, well-behaved incom, uh, rational, logical e-coms who just re- respond to price and availability and, and demand and, and all those sort of obvious metrics. People do quirky, weird stuff, you know, and, and behavioral economics is, is, is a way of describing things that seem ludicrously irrational. But actually, if you understand psychology, not only are they not irrational, they're quite predictable. Um, so, and I think across the board. In Give me an example. Um, a, a behavioral economic, best, most accessible example of behavioral economics is no one buys the bucket of Starbucks coffee or insert brand name coffee, right? So, so you go to a coffee shop and it says, would you like the small one? Would you like the fairly greedy sized one? Or would you like this industrial bucket of coffee? You know, <laughs> <laughs> the venti. Or what it's called, the, the mega grande, whatever, I don't know. But the point is that this is, this is something called um, decoy pricing, which is where if I give you two price options, you weigh them up and you go, okay, small or large, right? But, but by putting the enormous one in there, suddenly the larger choice, the premium choice, where I want to drive your, your purchase price at, becomes the middle one, it becomes the medium safe bet. So, so by putting bookends around there, suddenly I drive more consumers away from the, the smallest cappuccino and into the bracket of the middle. It doesn't matter if no one buys the great big bucket of coffee. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's the same phenomenon of people buying, people will buy the, the second least expensive wine on the menu in the restaurant when they're a young person. You know, they won't buy the cheapest, even though they, they're on a budget, right? The sensible choice is buy the cheapest wine, but they'll buy the second cheapest. I was listening to a talk by a guy who was talking. They, they did this experiment in a student union bar. Three beers, 250, 350, 450. And the next week, they made the £2.51, £5.50. So the first week, all, of, all the volume was in the middle. They didn't change the brands. They just, they just repriced the first one. And all the volume went up to the middle, went up, and was a pound more expensive. And they did it again. And the same thing happened. And so it's just, it, you know, and there you, they were, they were transparent, you know, they, they weren't saying trying to hide it, it but they, 
but still, people didn't buy the one they bought last week. They bought the more expensive one that was in the middle. Yeah, and it gets quirkier. I mean, there's a really great study around in supermarkets. You can Google this. I'm sorry, I don't have the references, but just type in, you know, buying wine supermarkets music, <laughs> because there was a, there was a study run where uh, they played different themed music in a supermarket. And uh, <laughs> oh yeah, French French music, yeah, French yeah, wine, buy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they would ask. So the sales rocketed. Based in you know the, the the sort of cultural theme of the music, that whatever that country was, that that wine soared in in sales while that music was playing. And then they just verified it by at the till asking someone why they chose the wine they chose. Why did you choose French wine today or whatever? And they were concoct some post-rationalized nonsense story to justify their purchase and and were oblivious to the fact that they've been primed and influenced by background music. So, So it's that kind of thing. Like We are constantly, there are so many variables that we're responding to all the time as human beings. Well, I like um, – there's um, – I think it's Cialdini's got an example in one of his books where instead of saying, please don't use the towel in the hotel because we're saving dolphins and whales or whatever, which nobody believes, it was you know, saying 75% of the people who stay in a hotel for two nights or more reuse their towels. And your point earlier about being, you know, herd animals. Social people group. go, oh, everybody does it. Oh, so – well, so I should do that. And, and, and people then just conform. Mm. Yep. It's just brilliant. Yeah. And until it's not. <laughs> until, you, <laughs> until you get into the realms of groupthink, which is the which is the the social science phenomenon where people will allow horrendous things to happen in order to not break from the group. You know, the 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 famous stories about spacecraft blowing up and people knew it was going to blow up uh, it would have just caused too much oh yeah the the o-rings that uh you know we i often try to break through that with clients by saying look you know this is the example of the space shuttle here's the o-ring people knew that it was going to happen but nobody wanted to listen to them so what in your company is it right who will know what's going to what's going to derail our plan how do we go find that how do we create the psychological safety so they're able to speak up and be listened to absolutely and so psychological safety another one right until google run that study psychological safety would not have been number one on the list and any any consultant i know any business leader i know if you said to them what makes a high performing team from a cultural perspective they would have come up with lots of stuff like you know, trust and, and uh, clarity and whatever. Psychological safety would not have been on the list or it would have been number four or five, you know. Uh, but, you know, it, 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 it turns out that it's pretty much the most important thing. And, uh, you know, we're discovering this stuff all the time. We're discovering the, the importance of it. I've always been fascinated in, in creative companies or knowledge working companies that we spend so much time fussing about variables that will make a five or a ten percent difference when the human variable of engagement and and uh, and discretionary effort and and performance state of the people in the business makes a thousand percent difference so, so when you think about that metric you know like what does presenteeism cost what does absenteeism cost was it what does it cost you when people are disenchanted and they're detractors from what you're trying to do you know, what, how much extra effort do you get out of people when they're absolutely thriving, when they're doing work they love, and when they're, you know, don't worry, I worked all last night. I know I wanted to, honestly. You know, so we know that this human capital thing about, you know, the, the variable is a ludicrous multiple. And we spend all our time titting about with 6% of this and 12% of that. Why? Because it's measurable and because the human factor isn't. Or, or we're not skilled enough to know how to how to how to make it sing and dance. I remember like working years ago for a, I won't say who it was, but it was a major car brand, and their cus- customer experience behaviour was horrendous, like in their showrooms. And and it was a little bit tricky because the the showrooms were franchises. They, they you know they're kind of business partners. They can't sort of dictate their behaviour, but but it's still a, a really crucial variable. And I'm sort of banging my head against the wall where they would only ever write a check for technical-based training. and They would never do anything behavioral. They would never do anything about mindset. They would never do anything 
anything other than something very, very measurable that has a tick in a box. And, and I remember, remember like having a, a frustrated conversation with an FD where I said, okay, how often do you renew the carpet? You know, and, uh, and, and, and he said, well, we actually, we, we change the carpet and all showrooms every three years and, you know, depreciate it over that period of time. And I was like, okay, uh, so you spend X amount on carpet. How much do you spend on training people in behavior? Zero. I was like, okay, when's the last time you stormed out of any retail premises because of the carpet? <laughs> But we we it, it's, we've become obsessed with measurement in, in business in in everything. You know, philosophy got replaced with psychology because it seemed more scientific, even though a lot of it's really questionable. And then psychology is now being 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 replaced with neuroscience because it's even more measurable. And 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 so to, and not knocking neuroscience because at the fringes of it, it's an incredible science. But there are thousands of neuroscience grads piling out of universities. Heaven knows what they're going to do. Probably marketing. <laughs> so, you know, we, we do get obsessed with what you measure and, and you get what you measure. You know, so whatever your metrics are, your performance metrics, that's what people will pay attention to. That's what, that's what gets rewarded. That's what gets noticed. So that's what will happen. I, I'm I'm struck going back with that comment though, back to your thing about CQ and curiosity. You know, because I, you know, I've I've used Net Promoter School MPS very successfully, either myself or with clients. And sometimes I meet people and they and they say, "Oh no, we did that, didn't work." And I'd say, oh, "Okay, what you know? Did you you read the book? Book?" They say, "Oh, you read the white paper." You've listened to the podcast and they just stand and shake their head. You think, well, what was it that you did? Like, you know, if you, if you, if you haven't actually read any description of it being implemented ever, what was it, this thing you did and how did it fail? And I think there is a, you know, why do people just, you know, because something gets done a lot, then everybody else copies it. You know, I, I, every time I get off the, tr uh, the, you know, mind the gap, mind the gap, Right. I can't find any evidence that saying mind the gap a thousand times a day or writing it on the pavement actually stops anybody stepping into the gap. Cause I don't think anyone deliberately steps into the gap and I don't think anyone notices when they're being told not to, Yeah, but everybody does it everywhere. It's an escalator it's like, at Manchester train station that says you are on an escalator. <laughs> <laughs> right. For the sensory deprived. Yeah. And so I, so it's just like, there's no curiosity going into that. It's like, why are we doing this? Why are we spending time doing the wrong things when we could be doing the right thing or doing, or even a curiosity around something different? Yeah. I, I mean, I think back to NPS, the genius of that is disregarding all of the me or the middle because, because you think about it, that's not a typical numerical approach because what you're doing is you're, you're, you're finding the extreme reactions and you're and you're eradicating all of the vanilla scores that would normally be a distraction on most metrics. So, so you're back in the world where, uh, almost like I was saying earlier, paying attention to the variables that are going to make an enormous difference. You know, the, the 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 promoters and the detractors, and ignoring all of that other stuff in the middle that normally consumes your bandwidth and distracts you because it doesn't bloody make a difference. Yes. Well, or even in the past thinking that somebody who gave you a seven and an eight actually gave a chuff about anything you did yeah. and then saying, actually, I have to completely disregard that. It's some people find that difficult or, or maybe their service is just crap. And what they can't come to terms with is that it's crap or that or that nobody that nobody responds to their survey because nobody cared whether their business existed or not. And that's that, so they just go NPS didn't work because somehow they couldn't overcome the dissonance and i think you know why do people respond to surveys what and and what mindset are they in when they do it and, and uh how do you get them to do more if you if more is what you want them to do yeah it's interesting isn't it? we've talked about business culture and we've talked about nlp and we've talked about theory of the brain but what is it that you know now that you wish earlier in your life you'd known 
I, th- I think so. I, I'm one of those people. I mean, I've, I've done okay academically in my life, but but first time round, I I quit during my A levels. I, I didn't make it to uni, and um, and I think I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder because I didn't go to uni. A lot of my friends did, and maybe that made me work harder, and maybe that's why I was successful young, relatively successful young, and um, not hugely, but but you know did okay kind of thing, and. Um, but I, I got to my late 20s and I had built a business and it was running along nicely and I had a lot of bandwidth and time. So I did a, a, a vocational qualification in strategic management. And, and it was really just to overcome my imposter syndrome, I think. But when I opened the first book of my textbook on strategic management, it said, you know, anyone who really knows what they're talking about will tell you that at least 50% of this is gut feel. Yeah, at least 50% of business strategies go through. And I remember the, just this incredible wave of relief <laughs> when, because, you know, having spent so much time thinking I was getting away with it and and uh, and, and somehow being lucky because all I was good at was making things simple, keeping people inspired, being reasonable and fair, listening to people, you know, striving for great results and growth that's all i was doing you know there, there must be something and the fact that i hadn't got a, a tick in a box or an exam maybe i was thinking that i was missing something and and, and i think learning that that i wasn't was was a key thing learning that that actually you know especially in business if if you're doing really well at it the chances are you're doing really well at it and, and you're not missing a trick you know and and i, and I think the the older and and grayer I've got, the more I've worked in, um, the more I've worked in big and small organisations. The the more I've noticed that culture and leadership are everything. Uh, I mean, that's a massive generalisation. Of course, they're not everything, but but really, in terms of the most most important variables, leadership and culture. Every dysfunctional environment I've been dragged into to fix has been. A, uh, has been knackered because of one of those two things. You know, it hasn't been knackered because of a dodgy spreadsheet or a or a, or, or some kind of measurable, visible uh, aspect of of plant or machinery. Or do, do you know what I mean? It, it's always the kind of it's always the tricky human element. I remember someone said to me, you know. Uh, Star Trek's really clever, isn't it? You know, they've got all these these beam me up and beam me down transporters and they can make their own food out of replicates. But the people drama is just the same. And uh, and, and I think, you know, the, the people drama that we have in organisations is probably quite similar to the people drama that we had, you know, several hundred years ago. So there, there are human elements to what we're doing that are the biggest performance variables they are the biggest difficulties, and if you get them right, they are the biggest performance gains and the biggest advantages. Um, and, and I think if I'd have if I'd have known when I was younger um, that it's all about the people stuff, I think I would have saved myself a lot of heartache and a lot of time paying attention to things that that really ended up being immaterial. Yeah, I look back and I think the best days always about the people. And the worst days are all about the people. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, but it's it it's that uh, you know that's because that's because I remember those because they create an emotional state and the memory gets stapled in your brain. What books have had an impact on you? But you hang on before we do that. You your you what was your NLP book? What was that called? Oh, well, that's a little old now. It's called Can We Start Again. But there's a few books out there. There's another one called Feedback or Criticism, which is about uh, about having a, a line managing as if like like you're a coach almost. Okay, that's what that's yours as well. That's mine as well. Yeah, so wrote, wrote it with an old business partner. And then there's another one. Um, is is Leon Taylor is the the main author name, and I'm on as a contributor. But I, I wrote it with him. He's an Olympic medalist, and it's about mentoring. And again, that's about you know a bit psychological but it's about you know having conversations and getting the best out of people and uh, aligning them with uh, with uh, their intrinsic motives and that kind of stuff and overcoming some of the difficulties so any any of those are okay but my, my new book which is not going as well as it should do is 
the best one. And I wish I could recommend it, but I think I'm a little way away from that. So, uh, so what did yeah. you say to me earlier? You've you, chapter three as a result of lockdown. You're at chapter three. Oh no, three additional chapters in lockdown. Yeah. Ah, okay. So I'm actually in right. only two from the end. So I've done seven. Right. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm sometime in 2022. Oh, let's hope. <laughs> let's hope. What um, uh, books by other people that have motivated you, inspired you, or tickled uh, you along the way? Yeah, the, the 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 most transformational one was just the first ever self development book I picked up, which everyone probably is aware of. The the Steve Covey, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I, th- I still think it's great to this day. That was that was I picked that up in my mid twenties, and that's what what started my uh, self development journey, like sharpen the saw sort of thing. And um, so that's a good one. So if you, I'm sure everyone listening's probably read that, but if they haven't, then you know, I think you. You, you know what? I I think it, it. I think sometimes books get so recommended that, that you if you haven't read, read it, somehow you stay away from it. Yeah, oh. I mean, for years I didn't. For years I didn't read Dale Carney's Win Friends and Influence People because everybody said you should read it, so I didn't. Yeah, and then I read it and I thought, God, what a great book! Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. I came to that one recently as well. Same reason, yeah. Popularity. <laughs> What else you got? Uh, I, I love anything by uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. He wrote The Black Swan. Uh, he wrote a book called Anti-Fragile, which um, I have to have a thesaurus with me sometimes when I read his stuff. Uh, it's it's a bit dense and a bit heavy going, but he is incredible. So I recommend that one, Anti-Fragile. I and mean, the central idea is brilliant. Um, was it as Friedrich Nietzsche said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So, so it's, it's this whole idea that um, human systems are, we, we, we think inorganically, but really we're quite organic. And we, we think the opposite of fragile is robust. Because, you know, if you, if, if you wall up a glass and it breaks, then it's fragile. If you wall up a glass and it, it doesn't break, then it's robust. But, but that isn't the opposite of fragile because all it's done is stayed the same. Whereas, you know, when it breaks, it's changed. So, so the idea is anti-fragile would be I hit the glass and it gets stronger. Uh, and that's what happens in organic systems. That's what happens with a vaccine. You know, that's what happens with uh, experience and life. And uh, that's what happens in the gym. So, uh, you know, so it's, it's a great book. That's good. And then the other one I'd recommend, and, I, I, and I'm going to make a recommendation to do the audio book, <laughs> if you can. And it's by a guy called Rory Sutherland, who's the vice president, I think, at Ogilvy. Um, and he's, I've seen him speak a couple of times, and, and we're, we've got a lot of friends in common, and for, but I've never actually met him. I, I don't know why. I'm sure we'll see enough. But I love listening to him. He's, he's sort of intellectually spunky. <laughs> and, and he's written this book called Alchemy, and it's all about the kind of irrational, quirky, behavioral economic stuff. That, that we were talking about earlier, where he's you know got a, a lot of years invested as a in, in an advertising agency exploring this stuff, and and the anecdotes and the stories and, and the ideas are just terrific. And you know I, I recommended it a lot to my friends who are quite old school economists or, or or quite financially minded, and they've all loved it. You know it's uh, but it's yeah it's it's very creative and very quirky and there's a few laugh out loud moments but it's it's profoundly helpful. Fantastic, Daryl, that's brilliant. You did say you were doing, you're running an NLP course. If anyone's interested, how where's the best? Go to DarylScott.com. Yeah, DarylScott.com. You'll find the course on there. I think I've updated. It's you know the year we've had. It's been moved about four times, but I've I, it has settled on some dates that. That are that are locked into the diary now, which is you know June July, is the is the last week of, of June and, and a couple of days into July. Fantastic, and you're you're currently in between entrepreneurial ventures. Yes, yeah. So I'm mainly consulting. If, if anyone's got any really interesting problems, because I know you don't get out of bed for the money's nice, but you get out of bed for interesting. So people have got interesting stuff. Where's the, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Well, same thing. Just go to the site or, or uh, my email address is ds, as, as in Daryl Scott, my initials. So ds at darylscott.com. 
uh, you can always just email me directly. Fantastic. Daryl, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. It's been fun, hasn't look it? Forward to seeing you. I look forward to seeing you in person again soon. Well, yeah, well, I'll see you at the next um, Monkhouse gig. Uh, <laughs> which, uh, when is That'll that? be brilliant. When's the next conference? When are we... We're doing we're doing one uh, second week of September. Second week of September, lovely. So I'll be seeing you then, if not before, Seth. That's brilliant, Daryl. Thank you very much indeed. All right, all the best, Tom. Take care. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.